In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today, Bud Ward, a freelance environmental journalist and journalism educator, is founder and editor of the Yale Forum on Climate Change and the Media. He started his environmental journalism career in 1974 and later served as assistant director of a Congressional Clean Air Act Study Commission before founding the Environmental Forum Policy magazine in 1982. In 1988, Bud Ward established the non-profit Environmental Health Center and founded Environment Writer, a newsletter for journalists covering natural resources and environmental issues. Also a co-founder of the Society of Environmental Journalists, in 1989 he has written two books on environmental regulatory issues and has also authored books and more than 1,000 bylined articles on environmental issues and on journalism. He twice served as a frequent environmental analyst and commentator for National Public Radio's All Things Considered and Morning Edition. He's also founded and managed the Central European Environmental Journalism Programme. He's the advisory editor for the Oxford University second edition of Encyclopedia of Climate and Weather. And in 2007-2008, he was an advisor for the United Nations Development Programme's Human Development Report, Climate Change and Human Development. Ward has since its founding been Contest Administrator for the Metcalfe Institute's Grantham Prize for Excellence in Reporting on the Environment, as $75,000 the richest prize in journalism. George Mason University's Centre for Climate Change Communications in 2009 named Ward a frequent lecturer and speaker on climate change and on journalism issues, its Climate Change Communicator of the Year. In addition to memberships in the Society of Environmental Journalists and the National Association of Science Writers, he's an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a member of the American Geophysical Union. Bud Ward joins me today on In Discussion. Welcome to In Discussion today, and it's a privilege to be joined by guest Bud Ward editor on the Yale Forum on Climate Change and the Media. Welcome to you. Nice to be here, David. I know that this is one of your many activities, and as a seasoned journalist, perhaps we could begin this by looking back over your career to offer a narrative to our listeners. How did you initially find yourself in journalism? Well, I guess I was a child of the 60s. I went into journalism with the notion that it could help save democracy, uh, make democracy run more smoothly, if you will. A little bit naive, a little bit romantic, but uh, that's the way it was. I was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Like all young journalists, I uh, wanted to go to Washington at the time. I, of course, uh, aspired to be the political reporter for the Washington Post and New York Times. No one told me that uh, 
R.W. Apple wasn't going to retire anytime soon from the Times, nor that David Broder, the late David Broder now, would be at the Washington Post until just this past week. So I still wanted to go to Washington as a journalist, and that's what I ended up doing very early. Journalism was always first love, David. It has certainly changed very dramatically over the years. Absolutely. Um, I never thought I would see the day where I would celebrate my oldest daughter's decision not to go into journalism, but I wrote a column celebrating that uh, well, probably about eight or ten years ago because of the trajectory of journalism at the time and since. What were the issues that you were involved in in the early days that strike the greatest memories for you? Well, I guess at the time, you know, and these were still college years when I was studying journalism, um, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and the tragedy at uh, Kent State University in the neighboring state where I went to college uh, were vivid memories. Of course, everything that happened in the 60s, and in particular, I guess, 1968, um, that fed into my... Uh, maturing, if you will. And um, then I, I got into environment uh, fairly early, uh, maybe around 72 or 73, I guess I started covering environment. I used to tease that I was the best environmental journalist in the country. The fact is I was the only one. So you didn't have to be very good to be the best. And, <laughs> and the real fact, David, is that I was not the only one and I was not the best. Uh, there were maybe a half dozen newspaper journalists specializing in environment back at that time. Uh, but it was a small growing field. Uh, Earth Day was uh, just just new. new. Uh, President Nixon had just signed uh, the National Environmental Policy Act requiring environmental impact statements and had declared the start of the environmental decade. Uh, little did he know. But he did that on January 1st, 1970, and I started covering environment about two years later. January the 1st, 1970 is a great memory for me. Grew up in England, listening to the great Alastair Cook, who, good or bad, wrong or right, compared to what an amazing journalist, commentator Alastair Cook was. Very different days. Yeah, we had uh, we had idols like that back then, didn't we, David? Uh, people like uh, Walter Cronkite or I.F. Stone or some of the, uh, the early journalists, Edward R. Murrow. Uh, so they created a, uh, a profession which, frankly, I was eager to be a very small, tiny part of. And uh, like I said, the, the field has changed enormously. As you develop this interest in the environment, as a social historian, I go back hundreds of years, I look at civilizations, but a very important period for me in analysis are the immediate post-war years. And I apply this uh, definition to each of the decades. I look at the 50s as really the beginning of consumerism and the 60s as the great times of love and activism and then the 70s, as my great friend John Perkins talks about, the beginning possibly of a predatory greed, a change in the corporate structure. And I know that many are not aware that protection of the environment did start as early as the early 70s. How do you see those decades and how do you see the way that we arrived at the 70s where in administrations like Carter 
that analysts begun to look at the environment, look at the protocols and the climate changes? Well, I think it was in uh, the late 60s that we had traumatic effects like the uh, ignition of the Cuyahoga River, uh, not the banks of the river in Ohio, but actually the river itself uh, went on flame. We had a recognition at that point that we had some, at the federal level in the United States, we had some laws on the books, but they really had no teeth. And we had uh, a very interesting thing started in the corporate community in around uh, 1970. Um, automakers came to Washington, D.C. and basically said, please regulate us. They did so, David, because they were being pecked to death by regulations originating or on the verge of originating in scores of different states. So rather than have to deal with regulations from different states, they basically said, please get these states off our back and regulate us as one. Sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for, and I think they eventually came to feel that way. But that led to a, a dramatic change in um, in regulation of the automobile under the Clean Air Act, which was passed in 1970. And that was, that was one of the big things. Another big thing was the, the civil works projects in the United States, and in particular the federal funding of uh, publicly owned treatment works. These are sewage treatment works. So the U.S. Uh, embarked on a, a very expensive, for the time and even now, effort to publicly fund at the federal level the construction and maintenance of, of sewage treatment plants. And that was a huge breakthrough uh, at the time. So there were a number of things that happened uh, right about that time, in the late 60s and early 70s. And it led to the 70s being, as Richard Nixon called it, the environmental decade. I should say that he, he came to regret that too, because just two years later, he signed the Clean Air Act. He, he signed the... Uh, the executive order creating the Environmental Protection Agency, the regulatory agency, and he signed NEPA, the Environmental Impacts Law. But two years later, he found himself vetoing the Clean Water Act of 1972. And that uh, his veto was overridden by the Senate, uh, nearly unanimous, it may have been unanimous, can't quite remember. But uh, his veto of the Clean Water Act was uh, overridden by the Congress and Congress went on throughout the 70s to pass a number of landmark statutes, pesticides laws, Endangered Species Act, uh, mining and reclamation laws, uh, just a whole bevy of uh, environmental regulatory laws. I think that the 60s now, from my perspective, see us moving into or rebirthing a new epoch and seeing dramatic changes in the fossil fuel industries by default, by pressure from an uh, ever-growing conscious public, see that they were more important than we could ever believe. I sometimes define the 60s as a large group of people, well-intentioned, that essentially knew how to burn the building down, but not how to reconstruct it. And they were definitely a generation of whose uh, talents and aspirations are resonating today. Would you concur with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so much so. You know, I was recently at a, uh, a music festival in uh, Rothbury, Michigan. 
and I say recently, this was 19, uh, 2007 and 2008, I guess it was. And um, I called on the musicians to tell me who were their counterparts. Um, to think back to the 60s when we had um, storytellers like Joan Baez and uh, Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary and a whole string of storytellers who basically laid the groundwork in many ways for what became the social revolutions of the 60s and led to the the environmental movement in, in the early 70s. And I wonder where the musicians are nowadays uh, dealing with an issue you just touched on briefly, the climate change issue, for instance. I wonder if 40 years from now we'll look back to this era and say, oh, there was the music that mobilized the youth of the, uh, of the first decade of this century. And uh, I'm not sure I see them yet. I hope I do, or I hope I will. But I want to know where today's uh, Bob Dylan is, and I don't quite find it. Uh, that is interesting. Uh, in these programs, I spend time with Susan Anthony on a Heroes series, and we talked to some wonderful individuals. Recently, we've talked to uh, the great uh, scientist, astronaut, Dr. Brian O'Leary, and on my programs to the wonderful Ed Mitchell and Professor Bill Tiller, uh, these people who are very immersed in consciousness, but also at the same time realize that there is an essential need now to change our energy policies. So all of these factors seem to be coming to a head, and it seems to me that they are as a direct result of the late 60s, early 70s, when it seemed that at that time the world was being driven by art, uh, the the David Hockneys, the Pollocks, uh, and by those musicians that you were talking about. But it almost seems today as if we don't have any tangible heroes, and you would think that it would be the musicians who would be leading the way, but at the moment they seem to have disappeared into the shadows. Well, that's certainly my impression, but I'm willing to acknowledge that I may just be totally out of it. I may not uh, be as sensitive to today's uh, musical scene as I should be to, to ferret out or recognize those, those would-be heroes. Um, I think that's not true, but I'm willing to, uh, maybe I'm even willing to hope that it could be true, that those, uh, those individuals or, or storytellers are out there, and uh, they're just not yet reaching my ears, but they're reaching the ears of the, uh, the next generation that will count so much. I think the next generation to me and on my journey I pretty much stay in the middle of the road and I do take two degree turns as the information comes in from a huge number of mentors around the world including scientists both in the quantum area as well as scientists who are looking at free energies and zero point and desperately looking to change the old paradigm that we have that things are changing there is a generation to me that I call the 80s generation. It, a very strong emergence of kids born in the 80s now who are working around the world on projects, creating community, uh, bringing back culture to indigenous societies, uh, and in a, in a smaller way, uh, looking again at the energies of the earth, the strength of Mother Earth, and of course, all the activities that come with that, like permaculture. It seems to me that sometimes, when you get to this age, that you 
may think that you're disconnected, but possibly not. You tend to lead the way and sometimes not be able to see through the fog and see these kids now from the 80s actually becoming a very driving force. Yeah, I I know what you mean. I I certainly do see some of that, and some of that can be very energizing, and uh, um, we we certainly need that. We need to foster it. You know, your mention of uh, the need for a new energy future struck me. I mean, even without, if you will, without the environmental reasons, for having a new energy future. There are so many other reasons to to reach that, that same end, um, even if it weren't for some of the environmental justifications for us to clean up our, our act and improve our energy efficiency and energy security. There would be so many other reasons to do the right the right thing by by the energy and by the climate, if you will. Certainly for me, it is a world where we need to have more courage. I remain very centered in what I do, looking always at the work of journalists, aforementioned journalists that we talked about, like Alastair Cook. Very important to simply deliver educational and inspirational information. But there's no doubt, I'm sure in your work, that we are reaching a precipice in climate change. An interesting point I really only recently had my eyes fully open to. I attended a conference in San Francisco in December uh, run by uh, perhaps the world's largest earth sciences organization, the American Geophysical Union. They had about 19,000 in attendance at their uh, meeting in San Francisco the second week of December. And one thing that struck me I'm familiar, pretty intimately familiar perhaps, with the uh, spectacular climate science research work that's going on around the world by, I'll say, the top three or four dozen uh, climate scientist names. And what most impressed me at that conference, were, uh, uh, I think, David, was uh, that there are thousands, literally thousands, of obscure, unknown, anonymous, but great scientists uh, conducting really pioneering work on better understanding our climate and they don't get any of the recognition this or name familiarity that this top three or four dozen do uh, but behind this uh, let's call it the top 50 behind them uh, there are just scores and scores of other diligent researchers laying the groundwork for us to better understand uh, our energy and climate future and how we can best, not only how we can best, but perhaps how we must best address uh, our needs for the future. So that, that was a real wake-up call for me. That raises a whole other issue which could take us off in a complete tangent, but there's definitely a suppression that we have had probably for hundreds of years, but certainly since the 20s, where you see amazing scientists like Tesla, who was looking at free energy devices, who was looking at the properties of water, even back then, who have been suppressed because of the need for the fossil fuel industries to maintain their momentum. And, you know, many of those are out there now, and I am personally being bombarded by the greatest of these to rediscover these free energies. A lot of them have, in the last 10 or 20 years, been crucified by the establishment. Many threats 
that seems to have loosened and relaxed a bit now. Perhaps uh, even those engaged in the traditional fossil fuel industries are coming around to realize that despite that amazing policy that emerged from the United Nations several years ago that should anybody collapse the fossil fuel industry that 300 million people would die instantly in the first 90 days that it is a necessity now to essentially bring oil to an end do you see that in your work well i do i do think i see that you know i'm thinking of an interesting parallel that, that actually some of your comments have, have brought to the top of my my mind right now um i remember when um the scientists first reported discovering the damage to the ozone hole by chlorofluorocarbons. And this was work that was done by uh, Sherwood Rowland, uh, National Academy of Sciences member at the University of California at Irvine now. And um, Rowland and his colleagues reported that these um, uh, previously uh, terrific, uh, great beneficial uh, chemicals were actually leading to depletion of the ozone. They were blackballed by the establishment, establishment that you just mentioned. In this case, it wasn't so much the fossil fuel industry as the chemical industry. And to be, to be fair and honest, it was actually mostly by DuPont at the time, which was the manufacturer of Freon, which was uh, one of the culprits, the principal culprit, perhaps. And uh, they were blackballed and, and uh, sequestered and uh, shunned. And uh, it wasn't until literally a couple decades later that Sherwood Rowland became, um, you know, the president, uh, mind you, the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He became a National Academy of Sciences member. Uh, DuPont came around and said, uh, oh, yes, he was right after all. We've now concluded and we better get rid of these uh, ozone-destroying chemicals. So maybe we'll see a similar turnaround in the corporate community, maybe even in the fossil fuel uh, industry, um, when at some point down the road, hopefully soon enough to matter and to, to make the amends we need to make, uh, they too will come around and recognize uh, the validity of some of the work, which now they're uh, basically castigating. We saw in the 70s and 80s, the Kyoto Accord that could never really gain ground and still is not in the scheme of things I think it's the United States who probably the the worst offender here in not concurring with a massive sense of opinion particularly in Europe and the European Union and Brussels it makes you wonder at this stage what it will take to bring people around to the acknowledgement that in light of the fact that particularly today we see the terrible events taking place in Japan, we've seen the events take place in New Zealand and many other areas like Chile, that uh, there are perhaps very strong signs now that um, our planet, uh, Mother Earth, Gaia, as it's turned by many, is not capable of withstanding the constant pressure by the fossil fuel industries. Do you see that as being a strong argument now? Well, I think so. But the, again, the thought that occurred to me as you were speaking there was um, not to underestimate what one individual 
possibly could do. And here in, in this case, in the case of the United States and in the case of, of climate change, where you're right, the U.S. has played the, uh, the role of the world's boogeyman, um, it wasn't so long ago, what was it, just over two years, where there was great optimism that um, an, a knowledgeable and bright and dedicated uh, president in the form of Barack Obama with a, a sympathetic Congress, which he certainly had uh, for much of the first two years of his, of his administration, uh, could provide the kind of leadership that I think is needed. And that's the one thing that is really going to be called for. Of all the things we may be missing in the energy and climate arena, the one thing we may be missing is extraordinary leadership. I think there were many, and I guess I would count myself among them, who had some expectation that President Obama might deliver that kind of leadership when he came to office and even before he he took office in that January, the previous December, one of his first speeches after the uh, being elected and before being seated, he singled out climate change as a, prim- as a priority issue that his administration was going to address. It was amazing. And yet we never did see the kind of leadership that uh, he seemed to be capable of, and uh, which for political reasons, I suppose, he had to set aside in the name of uh, you know an- another strong need, that is the health care issue. But uh, I think that op- window of opportunity for him to exercise that leadership is behind us now. And I think that's a, uh, that's a, it's a real, it's a real dilemma now in seeing how we move forward as a country, uh, as part of the global community to address what clearly is uh, a pressing, if not the pressing uh, global issue for our century and uh, our next generation. Many consider that a completely new type of governance has to be put into place. You could talk to many historians, uh, even many scientists, who look back um, over that transition from a feudal system to an industrialized system. And of course, we inherited that industrial system based upon that terrible equation of work where any energy is pouring out so much pollution, uh, even though you're getting something out of it, the outcome of that is having a terrible effect on humanity uh, in terms of health, in terms of environment and climate. I wonder, and perhaps you may have suggested this unconsciously earlier, that it will be the scientists who will become the heroes and in an ever-growing wave of consciousness across the world, and we're certainly seeing that in the Middle East. I'm not sure that that one could see the Middle East as being necessarily an awareness or a consciousness, but it's certainly sending us some sort of message that there's a greater sense of spirituality, um, less religion, but more spirituality. And I wonder whether scientists are going to become the leaders in connecting up technology with science to create that spirituality which will be the momentum to bringing us to the forefront in recognizing that climate has to be the absolute focus moving forward well let's keep our fingers crossed i mean that is certainly calling for a seismic shift 
in the approach that the, um, the scientific community, at least certainly in, in the industrialized countries, certainly in the U.S., uh, has been led to uh, believe it should take. Uh, that calls for scientists to be, um, if you will, citizens, uh, or at least citizen scientists. And there are some who are excellent at that and uh, can't be beat. And you have people like uh, the late Carl Sagan, who comes to mind as uh, the consummate citizen scientist. You have others who use their caller ID to uh, avoid any telephone call from a city council member or from a governor or from a local politician, or God forbid, from a U.S. legislator, House, or Senate, or from the media for that matter. So I think the scientific community, by the old definition of, uh, of its role, has indeed uh, met the standard of being a hero in the climate science field. And here I'm talking specifically about the earth sciences, the hard sciences, because there's another important realm of the science community, and that's the social sciences that are just beginning to become active and vital players in the whole climate change issue, for instance. And uh, they perhaps have not yet had the opportunity to show their uh, heroic potential. But um, I think the, the gavel may be passing from the earth sciences to the social sciences in forwarding our efforts to address these issues responsibly and in a, uh, a real stewardship uh, fashion, which I think is called for. Yeah, that could lead to a conversation lasting for hours, of course, because you're talking about an established science in a quantum thinking process who look at evidence and evidence alone, and then you talk about a scientific community who are looking at radical new ways of energy that may be free energy devices or, or whatever that consists of. And it's very difficult to bring them together as much as it's difficult to bring scientists together with legislators. You have on the one hand scientists who tend to live in their box and then, of course, on the other side, you have legislators or lobbyists who are very compromised uh, by the larger corporations. So there are a lot of obstacles to overcome. Yeah, and you also have the, uh, the media as, if you will, something of an intermediary between the two, or at least a potential or would-be facilitator between the two. The challenge arises because the media, as we touched on earlier, are, earlier, are undergoing their own evolution. No, make that revolution. And it's quite likely that we're at the beginning of what may be a decades-long sorting out of how the information, the important information in our society is communicated uh, to, to, uh, to the public, to the public at large. So... Um, if you will, it's a perfect storm. We're on a short fuse, we're told by the scientific community, for addressing um, our climate challenges. And also, I should say, seeking out the opportunities that those challenges uh, present. So we're on a short fuse there. At the same time, we're on um, a, a long-term collapse, I guess, of the mass media by which the information is shared with the public at large. 
So uh, I think it comes at just the wrong time for kind of the rapid response that uh, we might like to see. The scientific community, the so-called establishment or the academy, bears some real responsibility here. You know, uh, when a scientist goes out to speak to the, uh, to the public or speak to the reporter or speak to the Rotary Club or whomever, uh, they're frequently shunned by their peers for going off the reservation. Uh, they'll always tell you they don't get tenure by, uh, by fulfilling their role to, uh, to outreach or to speak to their community. I can't tell you how many scientists I've heard say, I don't want to become the next Carl Sagan. And I wonder about that. I said, well, if not you, then who? It was just as nature abhors a vacuum, journalists abhor a void. And they're going to fill that void. They might fill it with the wacko from the far left or the wacko from the far right. It would be much better if it could be filled by responsible science. Well, of course, that brings me back to that statement of moral courage uh, that I think that all of us need. Uh, my perspective on media is uh, I was interviewed a short time ago by a paper in the UK who described me as the new media. I said, well, what is that exactly? What is the meaning of that to you? And it was, well, you're not compromised by sponsorship or endorsements or um, the, the corporate community. And I think that was indicative of a main media now who is so driven by fiscal thinking that uh, it's become evident in places like the Gulf of Mexico where nobody is talking about the problems with the materials, the chemicals that have been used, and nobody's talking about the health issues, which are very serious. It does seem to be steering towards, as you say, uh, a meltdown or a disintegration of the media vehicle that we've known so well probably for 35, 40 years, and that would probably be talking as much to them as it would be to the journalistic community. Yeah, I think one of the keys here is the, the need for an evolving definition of an approach to media. For instance, the mainstream large metropolitan daily newspaper is probably the dinosaur of, uh, of our era. And we have to go well beyond that or the evening network news uh, or the certainly uh, the news weekly magazines. So we have to go well beyond that. But we can, David. I think we need to look at all sorts of communication media, even those we've shunned or the scientific community may have shunned in the past. So I think media now uh, must encompass things like the theater, things like uh, zoos and aquariums and science museums. It even can include things like Hollywood. You know, the National Academy of Sciences now has a full-time staff office in Hollywood to work with producers of sitcoms and uh, popular television shows to add a little bit more scientific validity to their um, to their, their productions. Uh, it matters whether the formula on the blackboard in the CSI detective story, whether that formula is accurate or inaccurate, that matters. I think the scientific community has to come to grips with this because they're not going to get 100% scientific veracity out of Hollywood or out of a, a film. 
the filmmaker's job, first job, is still going to be drama and bring in, the, bring in the audience. But if they can do that without compromising science quite as much, maybe the scientific community can settle for 50 or 60% scientific accuracy in a film like The Day After Tomorrow or whatever the next blockbuster film is. Uh, they won't get 100%, won't get anywhere near that but it'll be a whole lot better than the 10% they might have gotten without their involvement. You know, we did a feature recently in the Yale Forum publication that I, that I, um, support, that I edited um, on how the Simpsons have addressed global warming and climate change issues throughout uh, the, the decades uh, that the Simpsons have been on the air. Um, we're about to do one on how um, other, um, South Park, for instance, on how South Park has addressed climate change or global warming issues. They're reaching an audience clearly that the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or uh, any of the technical science publications on climate simply can't reach and won't. So I think we have to uh, redefine who media is and see if we can bring them into the fold on uh, responsibly informing our citizens. You know, make, make the important interesting. That's always been a challenge for the media, for journalists, as a challenge with climate change because it's clearly important and it can readily be made interesting by those with a yen to do that. Now, I'm inspired by that definition that you provide there because the, the Hollywood, I, I'm not keen on Hollywood, uh, there's an awful lot of darkness, but at the same time, there are producers and there are writers who, as you say, are laying in deeply in the storylines issues that affect children today, who are setting very deeply in their minds this need to protect Mother Earth, need to protect climate. And so I would agree that given the mass audience that we are probably, frankly, as Barbara Marx Hubbard, the wonderful futurist, says in a, a different era, in a rebirth, in a traveling into another epoch. We may not know it, but it is happening. And by having th that sort of energy that you talk about, you know, I certainly watch many films that are thrown across my desk, and some of them are uh, put into book form or they're books that are created into uh, transferred into screenplays that have that archetypal message or have a traditional ancient message that talks about the earth more talks about climate i'm sure you would agree that there are certainly issues and mindsets that are being created in the younger generation that we are probably not aware of uh, absolutely let let me cite just one quick example. It happens to be one that's, uh, that's running right now through April 9th at the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle. It's an exhibit, exhibit called Forecast, Communicating Weather and Climate. And the subtitle is A Collaborative Arts and Science Exhibition. Collaborative Arts and Sciences Exhibition. This comes about as a result of one a small Boulder, Colorado organization headed by a, a lady who calls herself a, a serial entrepreneur. And her, her purpose in life is basically to bring the arts and sciences, and in particular climate sciences, together. So what they do is they open this exhibit in Seattle 
at the convention center the first day of the annual meeting of the American Meteorological Society. So they get 12,000 meteorologists and weather scientists in Seattle. They have this art exhibit through which the uh, visiting conference goers must pass. And they're basically using the arts with virtually no budget and all their artists uh, donating work from across the state of Washington and mostly in the uh, Seattle area. You have an exhibit uh, communicating uh, the importance of climate science through the visual arts. So it's those kinds of initiatives that are so important and they're so, uh, you know, bottom up. Uh, I, th I think that's the kind of uh, that that's the kind of initiative we're going to see uh, in lieu, perhaps, of the uh, kind of strong international or, or national leadership that uh, we we haven't quite seen enough of. I think you're talking about the importance of community, but certainly that's has a incredible correlation with what we were talking about before if you put it into context we talked about a lack of musicians leaders in music as we saw in the 60s and yet in even in my world i am seeing scientists resonating more towards creativity and art now maybe that is as you say what is going to create our future that sort of dynamic uh, rather than a future that is simply governed by the old paradigms of politics uh, and religion as being the, the principal reference points. It could be that what you're talking to here is that incredible strength of scientific thought and yet uh, at the same time artistic creativity. Absolutely. And it's, it's the power of those two that I think is is so exciting and so untapped at this point. And uh, I think that's where we may see uh, some of the real gains that, that we desperately need to see. In your work uh, as the editor on the Yale Forum, how do you view academia? I have mixed thoughts. I view academia as a bit of a jungle, frankly, and I think that much of academia is perhaps compromised by corporate intervention. But how do you see academia in the future for the youngsters in particular? Well, I guess I see academia, the strength of academia being the youngsters and not the faculty, if you will, the students and not the faculty. Uh, you know, each year there's a program called Discourse, and Discourse is an effort to bring together uh, 36 of the nation's most promising new postdocs. Uh, these are individuals who have completed their PhD and they come together for a period of two weeks, usually in a remote western village, to learn uh, not the area that they studied in, formally in school, but rather to learn uh, the social science issues. So these are, for instance, climate scientists, oceanographers, aquatic biologists, atmospheric chemists who come together once, uh, once a year at the selection of National Science Foundation to learn about our political system and our, our, our system of media and our system of democracy, uh, you know, and the strengths and, and weaknesses and challenges we face with a, a democracy. I mean, your point earlier about a, a new form of this is, governance, this is obviously a, a slippery slope. 
because clearly there are, there are those who will say, aha, I knew they weren't interested in democracy. But you know, the truth is that democracy may not be the best uh, system of governance for us to quickly and effectively and rapidly address um, challenges like climate change. I'm not advocating anything other than democracy, but uh, it, it does appear to many that uh, if only we had a dictatorship, we could move a, a lot more authoritatively in these areas. Uh, that's about where the uh, analogy begins to collapse, I, sh I should add. But um, I think, you know, again, when, when you see the work that's being done behind the scenes by some of the um, young students who are coming up uh, out of academia, that's really refreshing and really invigorating. The challenge is what, what their own futures may hold in this climate we're in, no pun here, I mean the, the environment, the culture we're in now, uh, in terms of supporting uh, higher education and supporting the sciences. Uh, hopefully they can get uh, past the challenges uh, that they're going to face immediately as they step out of their uh, caps and gowns and into the workplace world. But uh, therein lies the future, and I think it, it, it has a potential to be very bright if, uh, if we can get them uh, well-situated. I remember that famous quotation by Al Gore after his uh, amazing work in The Inconvenient Truth when he said the warnings about global warming have been extremely clear for a long time and now we are facing a global climate crisis. It's deepening and we are entering a period of consequences. I, I look at Al Gore's work a lot and not wishing to change direction but looking at leaders. My goodness me, I could easily say that this man has been crucified at the best of times for his work on the inconvenient truth. Therefore, that suggests that possibly uh, people, especially young people, uh, if they are not in agreement that we are living in a democracy now may both at the same time feel that politicians are not worth listening to and that the political structures are not working anymore that despite that great work that people like Al Gore may not have a chance in leading this revolution that we talk about in adapting to the climate and bringing to that all the strength of social sciences and and all of the other platforms that can be considered and should be considered now in entering into this sure well you know it, it brings to mind the old cliche that no good deed goes unpunished uh, in, in addition to the al gores of the world uh, i'm mindful of some of the climate scientists who have uh, done absolutely pioneering thoroughly peer-reviewed and vetted research and work in this area and have nothing but scars and wounds to show for it. Uh, there are a number of instances you're probably aware of where uh, renowned climate scientists, whether they're MacArthur geniuses uh, or National Academy of Science members or uh, participants in the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there are scientists in those categories, David, who uh, lately have had to have um, security escorts uh, when they go to make formal presentations uh, at, at conferences uh, because they're the targets of such scorn and abuse. Uh, there are renowned scientists who have awakened one morning and gone out to their doorstep to find, uh, no exaggeration, to find a dead rodent with a noose around its neck and a note saying, this could be your family. And what was their sin? Their sin was to find 
that were imperiling our climate. They do so not based on their beliefs, but based on their thorough understanding of the best available evidence. Uh, you know, climate science, uh, th this isn't subject to belief systems or value systems. This is based on evidence. And what, what they've done is make professional careers a great financial sacrifice to study the scientific evidence and to report their conclusions. And for that, they've been literally, uh, in too many cases, tarred and feathered uh, by the political system. Uh, so that, that, that's a real challenge. And all of us, regardless of our philosophical or political leanings, should regret that we've come to that point on this uh, very critical and seminal issue. One, one other thing on, on this, you know, I always think it's important to, in this context, to, to discuss uncertainty. I want to make very one brief point. The best science is characterized by a certain level of uncertainty. Uncertainty is a plus. It's not a minus. The best scientists will acknowledge it and embrace it. If someone is speaking without uncertainty or without what might be called error bars or margins of error, they're probably practicing political science or rather politicized science and not real science. The only other point I want to make on uncertainty is this. Uncertainty cuts both ways. Uncertainty could mean we're overestimating or could mean we're underestimating the impacts. The data to date suggests that in the climate science area, we have actually tended to underestimate the impacts. That's scary. But uncertainty cuts both ways, and it's time the public come to appreciate that. I would agree that those who are absolutely certain are in what I would call an ego. And all the human frailties that I discuss much on these programs, ego is the killer. At this time in our evolution, uh, we need to eradicate ego as much as we need to eradicate fear because neither of them serve us well. Let's just ask ourselves when the last time we heard a, uh, an advocate or a partisan uh, talking about the uncertainty of their position uh, doesn't happen. Uh, they're absolutely certain. They know for a fact. Science, on the other hand, must talk about uncertainty. But when they do, what happens? As Andy Revkin, New York Times science reporter for so many years, used to say, uncertainty means A37. That was his way of saying his story, if it had elements of scientific uncertainty, got moved from the front page to ghettoized, in his term, on page A37. Got buried. Well, you're absolutely right, and we can look at this in a different context. That is also talking about humility, and certainly when scientists do use that humility and they will not attest to or be arrogant enough to make any firm conclusions, at that stage they do have the risk now of finishing up on page 9 in, instead of the first page of the of the paper or the, the sure. scientific magazine. On the other side of the story, of course, if you have scientists who are displaying ego or who have an arrogance equally, they may find themselves in the same position. So is it not always a fine line? But now, with all of that said, 
it is about community it is about scientists from both sides of the fence whether they're scientists with a quantum analytical thought process as much as those scientists in the new science area who simply have to lower their swords and come together and figure this out before we really do have some serious issues because in talking to quite wonderful scientists um, over the last three or four weeks it is evident that we're not talking about 200 years here but we're talking about a very short space of time given the disasters that we're seeing uh, whether man-made with the oil disaster in the gulf of mexico or uh, a natural disaster as we've seen in haiti and new zealand and now japan that it is time to act very quickly and the only way to assume that is by everybody coming together and being one in this campaign that's what it's going to take and again i'll go back to it's uh the need for exceptional leadership, unprecedented leadership uh, from someone, somewhere. And uh, that's a burning desire, and we have not yet uh, discovered that leadership. So it may be a ground up, it may be a, a campaign that originates with the grassroots, and as you say, at the community level. As you move forward, final thoughts on your own position as a journalist. Do you indeed see yourself still as a journalist or perhaps in context to what we've been talking about here indeed changing yourself just as media is changing just as journalists are changing just as we're all changing that perhaps we are adapting ourselves into a different way of thinking a different way of acting and looking at things very differently now well i, I sometimes regret that i uh i probably do see myself moving away from my old uh, ink in the veins definition of being a journalist or a reporter. I always thought that the, uh, the fondest word that could ever appear on my tombstone someday would be a reporter. I now think of myself, David, more as a journalism educator and more, more as a communicator, I guess. I have lots of the old traditional journalism beliefs and values and independence uh, that I revere. But I do things nowadays, frankly, which I would never have done as a pure journalist. For instance, uh, I, I've received federal grants from the National Science Foundation to do work in this area. And uh, in the old days, I would never have thought of uh, accepting funding from the federal government, even an agency like the National Science Foundation. So I've changed, and the, the field has changed, and it will continue to change. I just hope it can change in a way that protects its traditional values and ethics and I think that's a, a, a real concern that all of us uh, need to have in mind because those are critical to a, a functioning democracy or republic. But Ward, it has been a great pleasure talking to you today. I do thank you so much for your time and certainly look forward to sharing more time with you in the future on programs here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and congratulations on your informative and, uh, program. I enjoy it thoroughly. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program with our special guest, Bud Ward. You can gain information on this or any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. 
This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.